when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be discussing the unparalleled catastrophe of British politics and the leadership crisis in the Tory and Labour parties and the fallout from the EU referendum. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Shrimsley, managing editor of FT.com, Philip Stevens, chief political commentator, Ian Martin, another political commentator, Marcus Roberts from YouGov, and Jim Picard, the FT's chief political correspondent, and James Blitz, leader writer. Thank you all very much for joining. So we'll begin with the Conservatives, whose leadership contest has begun in earnest. We now know the next Prime Minister is either going to be Theresa May, Michael Gove, Liam Fox, Andrea Leadsom or Stephen Crabbe. But there's a name missing from there, Boris Johnson, who was the long-expected frontrunner, who amazingly dropped out early on Thursday morning. So, Philip, I'm going to begin with you here. There's so much to process and get through now. It seems quite odd to actually think about who's going to be Prime Minister in a few months' time. But looking at where the contest lies with that lineup, who do you think it's going to be? Well, when I wrote earlier this week that politics in Britain was beginning to resemble that of Greece, I thought I might be accused of a certain hyperbole. But given the events of Thursday, I'm not quite sure. But where we go from here, I think it's quite clear that we expected two front runners in Theresa May and Boris Johnson. I think we have probably got two front runners now in Michael Gove and Theresa May. But given the dynamics and what we've seen in this leadership contest almost before it's started, I don't think it's safe to make predictions. I mean, politics is a rough trade. And I remember, for example, during the fall of uh, Mrs. Thatcher, John Major, for example, going absent without leave for a few days with with a toothache, he said at the time. But I don't think we've seen politicians stabbing themselves in the chest with such uh, enthusiasm uh, as we've seen in this context. So just to clarify what exactly happened on Thursday, which was the deadline for the nominations for the leadership, Boris Johnson was expected to announce his bid at 11.30 and at 9am a mysterious statement dropped in journalist inbox which announced Michael Gove was running and Ian, the statement was amazing. It was a full-on direct attack on Boris Johnson saying he was not ready for the leadership and his team was not the right man to leave the country. And this is from Michael Gove who was the chief Brexiter just just last week, he was on stage with Boris. It was yeah. Boris and the Gover. Now, they're not together anymore. Certainly not friends anymore, I yeah, don't I mean, imagine. Picture the scene this morning as they're a couple of hours away from uh, Boris's great speech. The speech is written and the key people in Boris's campaign are clustered, including Linton Crosby and Ben Wallace, the Northern Ireland minister. And they have no idea about what's about to happen. And then up on Twitter pops this extraordinary news And as I understand it, there had been no communication at all between Michael Gove and Boris Johnson. It happened completely out of the blue. 
And they just had to watch on social media as their campaign within an hour collapsed. And Boris had got into this morning thinking he was going to be prime minister with as many as 95 signatures in the back uh, from MPs backing him. And within an hour, they realised that that was down probably below 50 because so many Tory MPs had defected straight away to Michael Gove. It's almost as though it had been planned. And uh, one of the people at the heart of the campaign described it to me as a cuckoo in the nest plot. And that Gove and his team had taken the list of names, had worked in the last couple of days to persuade people and then knifed Boris in the front. It's particularly extraordinary, Robert, because Michael Gove has said, including in an interview with the FT a few years ago, that he had no desires whatsoever to be prime minister. And in his statement on Thursday, he said that, I, you know, I've never had any aspirations in that direction. So it was very much, I'm not going to run but I am running to stop Boris. Yes, of course, all the great politicians do deny any interest in the top job until it becomes within their grasp. It was the most spectacular political assassination. I've never seen a better one in British politics. I mean, I recall Anne Widdicombe destroying Michael Howard by talking about something of the night. I recall Geoffrey Howe doing in Margaret Thatcher in the Commons, but I don't recall anything that within two hours had completely destroyed the person they'd set out to get. And it was a perfect attack. On the day that Boris is due to launch, you destroy his entire launch. It is quite staggering. The whole week has been completely staggering and I won't be surprised if by tomorrow Jeremy Corbyn is running for leader of the Conservative Party (laughs) and Boris has decided to see if he can have a run at Labour. It's been completely preposterous. When we look at the rest of the contest now, Philip, which seems a little bit sort of tame and the rest is, you know, Boris was going to be uh, the joie de vivre to this. He was going to be the exciting, you know, at least he thinks himself as Churchillian figure that would be the Merry England candidate to bring the country and the party back together now. It's going to be a very different contest without him. Yes, I think it's going to be, in a way, a rather more grown-up contest to you know whatever one's politics. I think there was a, a certain concern among a lot of people that Boris was not really a serious contender to be British Prime Minister. And the contest, I think, risked being something of a circus. You know, Boris tends to turn politics into circuses. I think now we've got a pretty serious campaign with a pretty serious bunch of people holding different views. So I'm very conscious of what Robert said about, you know, what could happen tomorrow. So I don't want to leave any hostages to fortune. But it's quite possible now that we will have a serious debate about the direction of the Tory party and, critically, the disengagement from Europe. So just pick up on that point of Phillips. I think one of the really important things that's changed by Boris departing this contest is that the hopes that some people had of a big fudge around the way Britain exits the European Union have been diminished. Theresa May was extremely clear Brexit means Brexit. Michael Gove clearly couldn't have been clearer and during the campaign was pretty much the only person that was abundantly clear that he was not interested in rejoining the single market. So I think one thing when the dust on this has settled we will see is that the front runners in this contest have rather dashed the hopes of an easy, gentle, fudged exit. I think the advantage that Theresa May has is that everyone's saying, well, of course, it's the Tory party in the country that decides. But the Tory party in the country will be aware of opinion polls, be watching television debates and taking account of what the country is These saying. These are politically engaged people. Precisely. So the advantage that she has, and she put on a very good performance this morning, is that after the chaos of the last week, there's a, there's a strong case for saying, look, 
who do you really want to be in a room with Angela Merkel having a proper grown-up conversation? Can you imagine that person being Theresa May? You very much can. Her weakness is that, of course, that she was on the Remain side and she was a very lukewarm Remainer. And there are Tories who say the next Prime Minister has to be a Brexiteer. I'm personally not convinced by that. I think the first of those aspects of the debate will in the long run probably outweigh the obsession with what happened in the campaign and it will become about who can lead the country, who can come to a deal uh, with Merkel and with uh, other European leaders. And she was loyal to the Prime Minister, unlike Michael Gove, and I think that will count with at least some of the activists in the country who do value, I think, loyalty. And I think although she was on the Remain side, as you said, she was lukewarm and she was loyal. I agree with that. And I think what was also interesting in Theresa May's launch, which has somewhat been overshadowed by all the knifing, which for journalists is far more entertaining to watch than a policy-heavy speech, was that she announced a Brexit unit, which would be a new sort of almost government area headed up by someone from the Leave side. Chris Grayling, who was a big Brexit um, campaigner, introduced her. And there's talk that Liam Fox's campaign may just be a run-up to him defecting over to Theresa May's side. But what do you think about Michael Gove, Ian? Because, you know, we never recountenanced his candidacy. What do you think he's going to do? And is it going to be a serious thing? You know, might he just fall away and let it be a Theresa May coronation? I don't think so. I mean, I, like quite a few of us, I've written pieces down the years saying that Michael should rethink and that he should at least consider the possibility of, of a run. Someone sent me a piece I'd written in 2012 saying precisely that. I think his difficulty, and I think he's a very, very strong candidate, and there will be a lot of pro-Brexit Tories who rally to him. I think his difficulty is that he's in the middle, or he has unleashed the most extraordinary political psychodrama. It's not really even about ideas or who has what position on Brexit. You've got to see this in terms of the psychology of that relationship between Gove, Cameron and Osborne. And Gove has always been a slightly geeky one, bullied a bit by Cameron and Osborne. And in going for Brexit, he actually broke with his friends and did something really audacious. Knifed and both now of them. Knifed, knifed both, both of, of them. them. And then a week later knifes the front runner for the conservative um, leadership if only we had a great national playwright a bard <laughs> to to draw on for illusions at a moment like this but this is a plot that usually political journalists as fools say and just are pretty unshockable mm. and pretty skeptical and cynical about politicians but this is just out of this world so robert outside of the two main contenders there Theresa may and michael gove we've also got a few others we've got stephen crabb who um launched yesterday in a passable speech that was solid about trying to talk about blue-collar working-class values and trying to bring a fresh air. Liam Fox, who um, ran in 2005 and went through an interesting period as a cabinet minister. And Andrea Leadsom, who was one of the other Brexit campaigners, who was one of the key reasons we think that Michael Gove decided to knife Boris because she tried to ask Boris for a job and it never really worked out. Are any of those going to provide anything interesting to the race, do you think? Well, I think it would be a fool who categorically said none of these things were going to happen. It does look like two giants and three others. I have to say, I think if this had been in a year's time, I think Stephen Crabb would have been a very, very plausible candidate. He looks a bit green now, but he's got a good background. He's interesting. He's in the right sort of middle of the party without making any major concessions to modernisers. I think he would have been interesting probably a bit early for him. Liam Fox, I think, will fall away very quickly, as you said. I, I think there are stronger Leave candidates, and I think he's busted after his earlier resignations. Andrea Leadsom's the one I find puzzling and the hardest to call because 
if for any reason go falls away or self-destructs or somehow isn't quite cutting it she's one to watch i was surprised she put her hat not surprised today but i was surprised when talk first surfaced of her putting her hat into the ring because a bit like stephen crab i think she's a bit too far from the front line but you know if it goes wrong for gove maybe she has a run at it it's quite hard to see other than the top two making it through Yes, I think that's clear. I mean, I think, as Robert said, Stephen Crabb is one of those politicians you look at and say there is a potential future leader of his party, but it's just a bit early. Andrea Ledsom, I'm completely puzzled because I found her, I don't know her well, but just watching through the referendum campaign, I found her the least impressive of the Brexiteers and making the case. And I don't know whether she has a philosophy for the Tory party listening to her today. She was talking about it had to be a Brexiteer, but I, she didn't seem to give a picture of the Tory party that she wants, whereas Theresa May gave a very, I think, comprehensive picture of the Tory party she wants, which is essentially, I would say, one nation with a sort of authoritarian twist as far as issues like immigration and perhaps crime and punishment go. I think Fox is there because there is a, he has a block of MPs, some of them from the South West, but a socially conservative portion of the parliamentary party. It used to be, if you remember the group, Cornerstone or Tombstone, as they used to be called. <laughs> that part of the party likes to have some kind of voice and representation. And you can see that that's a valuable block for Gove or May to attract and persuade them to switch at a crucial point, possibly after the first vote. Ledsom, what I'd watch out for with Ledsom is Ledsom being poached uh, by May because May obviously is short on Brexiteer credentials. So be, it could, she could be bolstered at some point by a prominent Brexiteer joining it. The other thing that I would flag up is Scotland. I think Scotland is really, really important in this and I think the nationalists will be absolutely furious because Boris for all of his many qualities Boris was their trump card and I use the word trump deliberately (laughs) in that he was a leader that while he could play very well in parts of England as a unionist one of my major fears was that he would be red rag to a bull in Scotland. Crabbe plays well in Scotland but May versus Sturgeon is a really interesting uh, conflict, And you can actually imagine Theresa May being someone who's not really going to take a lot of nonsense from Nicola Sturgeon. And I think the union is stronger for Boris not being in this campaign. I agree with that. And it's also the role of Ruth Davidson, who had a very good EU referendum campaign. And she's very close to Stephen Crabb. And we saw in his speech yesterday talking a lot about the union. I was born in Scotland, brought up in Wales. We need to move beyond these Remain leave tanks and think about the whole country there. So I think the question of the union is going to be an interesting one. And Michael Gove as well, who was born in Scotland. And so, you know, it's very much not an English contest now. Ruth Davidson is very, very close to Stephen Crabb and has been one of the people pushing him for the last year in this direction. And she will also, I think, play a big part in deciding if he is knocked out where his support goes. She absolutely hated Boris Johnson. I was actually just going to raise a question because the one thing that I find myself finding it hardest to work out now is what next for Boris Johnson? Because the speed of going from coming man to has been was, was quite like a very good remarkable. Secretary of State at DEFRA. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's possible, but I mean, I, I can, you can construct an argument that says he waits around, lets someone else come in, mess it up. And then he comes triumphantly back. I'm not sure. I I think he's busted. I really I think, do. I think he's busted. But in classic Boris fashion, he has a book coming out this autumn, which is A Life of Shakespeare. So we can look forward to seeing more Boris in the future. Do you think he would serve in the next cabinet? Well, I think he's been found out in the last few weeks. And I think 
particularly in his Telegraph article this week, a sort of rambling collection of contradictory thoughts about where Britain should go next. I think the danger for Boris is if he gets a serious job in a future government, he will be seriously found out. So I tend to agree with Robert that this may be it for Boris. And it's not only the Tory party that's had its own leadership problems this week. Jeremy Corbyn's position has still looked very much in doubt. The Labour Party had a no-confidence vote where 80% of the parliamentary party voted against their leader. And yet, at the time of recording, he is still there and is refusing to budge. Everyone from Ed Miliband downwards in the party has called for him to go. And there's been various rumours of a leadership challenge, but nothing has quite appeared just yet. So, Jim Picard, in the light of the Brexit, it vote both parties have been in a mess and it's a pretty tight battle to say who's made a bigger hash of it but I'd say probably on balance Labour would you agree? It's not that they've made a hash of things it's that tensions which have been there suppressed for about nine months if not longer have finally come to the surface and it's a situation that loads of people saw as untenable for a very long time and certain people have seen the they've seized the opportunity of the referendum result to strike against Jeremy Corbyn and try and bring him down on the ostensible uh, logic that he was responsible for that result. Marcus Roberts is a great watcher of Labour things. This is something that's been on the horizon for quite a while. There's been a lot of talked about coups and people thought something would happen and it did. And it was a no-confidence motion for Margaret Hodge, which came out on the Friday. And then Hilary Benn was sacked on Sunday morning. It's hard to keep up with all this. Then we had the no-confidence motion, a debate on it on Monday. The motion on the Tuesday. We're now on Thursday and he's barely got a shadow cabinet together. You know, it's going to be cardboard cutouts by this time next week. We saw the amazing side of Paul Flynn, who is 81 years old, on the front bench because there's literally no one else left who's willing to serve. And that's one of the important things we need to remember. So much has happened so fast that there hasn't actually been any time for the reality of the situation to sink in with Team Corbyn. I think it's more likely than not that once you get out of the adrenaline of combat operations, it may well dawn on members of Team Corbyn that they can't fill a shadow cabinet, that they can't fill junior shadow ministerial posts, that they're facing permanent insurrection from the Parliamentary Labour Party, that you have over 500 councillors now from the Labour Party saying we have no confidence MEPs in, in Labour. Too. We have 20 MEPs who have written to Jeremy Corbyn saying they have no confidence in his leadership. And what needs to happen now probably is for all sides to take a step back and pause and realise that what the situation is, allow the adrenaline to drop and then make some decisions over the weekend. But Marcus is from the old school of New Labour, where things were orderly, things were logical. What people have to remember is that the party is now in the control of a small clique of people whose political idols are, genuinely, people like Lenin, Trotsky, Marx. I exaggerate, not at all, in their youth. These were the people who they took inspiration from. And you therefore, actually missed Stalin off that list as well. Almost certainly. And therefore, if you take uh, the fact that Labour's in a state of chaos and rebellion, and it's all over the place... They would see that as fertile territory for what they really want to do, which is to hold on to power. This is their only chance in decades, if not centuries, of taking control of a major political party in one of the G7 countries. And what they want to do fundamentally in the long term 
is get rid of these MPs. They don't care if they have to deselect 200 MPs through a gradual process of attrition in constituencies around the country. They are determined to do this. One thing we've seen, um, James Blitz, is this idea of mandatory reselection has appeared again. This is very much part of that hard left agenda, which would be if MPs don't fall into line behind the leader, which they are clearly not, that there will be rule changes that will mean that local constituencies will automatically have to rerun the contest for their MPs. Now, since we've seen this big hard left infiltration of Labour, that would mean a huge change in the makeup of the Labour Party. So the question is, is it the MPs who are going to change or Mr Corbyn? Well, that to me as an outsider, looking at it from the editorial writing point of view, is an issue that might arise in the long term if Mr Corbyn manages to hang on in the long term, because that's a process that would take time. I think the more immediate question is if a candidate to challenge him emerges and people talk about Angela Eagle and if she goes ahead with her nomination and that process takes place, the question then arises, what is going to happen with the Labour rank and file membership? Is it going to back Mr Corbyn as it did last year? Or is it possible that, first of all, some of those people will have decided that they really don't like what's happening and they'll realise that someone like Angela Eagle or Tom Watson, it looks like it will be Angela Eagle, is the right person? And secondly, will there be a composition of that rank and file membership because more centrist um, voters might decide that they would like to join the Labour Party, repeating the entryism that happened last year. Now, that seems to me the, the immediate variable. And I don't know whether my two colleagues here around the table can give an answer to that. How do they think that's going to, to play out? Well, I think that the straws in the wind that we have here are the dozen or so constituency Labour parties that met last night to pass confidence or no confidence motions in Jeremy Corbyn. And they split pretty much 50-50 down the middle. That was surprising to me as a Labour politics watcher because I would have thought that would have been overwhelming support for Jeremy Corbyn. So it does indicate that something has changed. And the only things that have changed since uh, last month when our YouGov poll in May showed overwhelming support amongst the grassroots membership for Jeremy Corbyn is the referendum result and the resignations that have followed. I think, therefore, that all eyes will be on the grassroots opinion in the wake of these events to see whether there's been a shift there as well. The key thing that we can actually mention, Jim, is that a lot of evidence came out that Jeremy Corbyn, because he didn't play a big role in the EU referendum campaign, and we just thought, oh, well, he's not really that on board with it to be standing back. But then evidence was leaked to the Huffington Post and to the BBC that he was actively undermining by not giving that key membership data to the stronger in-campaign and removing pro-EU messages. And the sense has been that those grassroots members Marcus was talking about have decided, oh, well, we liked you Mr Corbyn but we like the EU even more and you've let us down on that. Well I'm aware of all of those accusations as well I've heard reports of press releases being delayed until eight or nine o'clock so that no one would pick them up of Corbyn's team rewriting press releases so that they were less in favour of Europe and I was at one of his speeches where he declared that the Treasury warnings about the impact of Brexit uh, were scaremongering where he was literally torpedoing his own side in full view of the TV cameras. Extraordinary. So he deliberately undermined the campaign. Now one point I would like to make which the Corbynistas would make is that they still think something like a third of Labour voters voted out, but two thirds voted in. And that proportion is not dissimilar to the Lib Dems. It's not dissimilar to the SNP. And one thing I picked up going out on doorsteps, talking to people who wanted to vote out, was that they weren't listening to any politician. And therefore, there's a big question mark over whether Jeremy Corbyn single-handedly 
could have swung the rebellion. Going back to the members as well, I think there's a bit of wishful thinking that we might think logically, you must realise if you are young Corbynistas that staying in Europe is more important to you than one individual person. But the Corbyn mania is almost like a religion where these guys can't see anything wrong with them. And I haven't done this experiment yet on social media, but I'd love to where you ask Corbynistas or Momentum, do you think Jeremy Corbyn has any flaws at all? I have a horrible, scary feeling that they're going to say no. A lot of it's a cult as well. We saw two rallies this week which were held by Momentum, which is this collective that supported Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And he appeared at these rallies. One was in Parliament Square, led by Paul Mason. The other one was at SOAS, led by students. And so it does seem to be, James, more about Corbyn than the Labour Party in some senses. Yes, he's clearly somebody who's radicalised, you like, a large part of the left-wing vote and people have this very strong adherence to him. And it's interesting listening to what Jim's saying. It's quite extraordinary. In the country generally, there is a very strong sense that young people are very angry with the referendum result. Mm. Something like, I think the figure is that something like 75% of people below the age of 24 backed Remain. And so it's quite striking that you have these young people inside Labour, on the left wing of the Labour Party, for whom that disappointment doesn't seem to have come through. And for them, it's more important that Jeremy Corbyn represents these kind of left-leaning values and that the Europe issue is sustained, and it is a surprising thing. We'll come back to the leadership crisis in a moment, but the other extraordinary thing we've seen this week was the conclusion of the anti-Semitism inquiry, which resulted after... Uh, there was this perception that grew a few months ago that Labour had an anti-Semitism problem from various things that had been said, not least by Ken Livingstone, who had his infamous TV appearances where he couldn't stop mentioning Hitler over and over again, and Shami Chakrabarti, formerly of the Liberty think tank led this, and when it was launched, it was absolutely extraordinary, James. Can you take us through that? Yes. I mean, before the referendum debacle, this was by far the most serious problem that the Labour Party had faced under Corbyn, at least in the last few months. And as a result of all these events and these anti-Semitic incidents, Jeremy Corbyn asked Shami Chakrabarti, the Liberty campaign, the former head of Liberty, to set up this inquiry. The inquiry came out today, uh, it's of course very unfortunate that it's come right in the middle of probably the biggest maelstrom in British politics, so it's not getting the attention that many people might have imagined. Broadly speaking, I wouldn't say it's an overwhelming document. It says there's an occasionally toxic atmosphere inside the Labour Party as regards Israel. It says that epithets such as Paki and Zio should not be used. Labour members should resist the use of Hitler, Nazi and Holocaust metaphors. It's making those kind of recommendations. But that seems blindingly obvious. Like, it's not just accepted so Society. It is blindingly obvious. The basic problem that the Labour Party has with this is that as long as Jeremy Corbyn is in charge, nobody is really going to take any kind of effort on this front seriously. He himself badly undermined the effort that Chairman Chakrabarti was making by saying at this press conference, and I quote, because I wanted to quote the thing correctly, our Jewish friends are no more responsible for the actions of Israel or the Netanyahu government than our Muslim friends are for those various self-styled Islamic states or organisations, which to many people seem to be equating Israel with ISIS. That was an incredibly bad thing to say. And then there was a really unpleasant heckling of a Jewish MP at this press conference who was being accused of having been in league with media groups to try and undermine the Labour Party. So all in all, the Labour Party has not come out particularly well from this particular day in terms of the inquiry. It's worth reflecting on what happened there in terms of the heckling of Ruth Smead MP. Ruth isn't just a Labour MP and a Jewish MP. Ruth used to be a senior staffer for the anti-racism organisation Hope Not Hate. 
This is a woman who is tough as nails. She has dealt with racists and with fascists in her time. And yet it was today at a Labour leader's press conference that she was driven from the room in tears when ostensibly a Labour Party slash momentum activist heckled her in terms that were really quite unacceptable. And this is pretty remarkable because what it shows is the state of the Labour Party. And it shows the reason why I don't believe the state of the Labour Party is sustainable. And Jim said earlier that those who remember the new Labour years might think that they're more used to an orderly process of politics. I do think that when reality dawns, people will realise that this isn't sustainable, whether they're from the centre-left, the old right, new Labour, or what have you, or even perhaps the party's grassroots. Reality will have to sink in. But this is exactly the point of what has happened. As Marcus says, the rebellion that's claimed 81% or more of Labour MPs this week has stretched right across the spectrum of the Parliamentary Labour Party. It has gone from the Blairites all the way through the Gordon Brown followers, through the middle of the party to the so-called soft left, and even some people that are more left-wing than the soft left. But the hard left... They've got control of the reins of the party and they're refusing to let go. And the strange thing to people used to the new Labour years is that the grassroots, hundreds of thousands of these young people, think that anyone who remotely criticises Corbyn is a Blairite. That's become a term of abuse. Even people Thomas who are Piketty. really left <laughs> Thomas Piketty is a Blairite. Exactly. exactly. And just finally on this Labour topic, go back to the leadership thing now. At the time of recording this, late on Thursday, Jeremy Corbyn is still Labour leader. Nobody has officially challenged him yet. Do you think he's still going to be leader this time, September, James? I sincerely hope he isn't, because this is an absolutely critical moment for the country. I think it's reasonable to say, as an outsider, that the Conservative leadership has made a pretty big mess of the whole Europe situation. We are in an extraordinary crisis. Labour ideally for the party, should have an opportunity here to really maximise its appeal to come forward as a kind of centre-left party with some serious ideas for how to gain a new equilibrium in Britain's relationship with Europe. If this goes on for much longer, it really will face an existential problem. And Jim? My best intelligence, which could be wrong by the time I leave the room, is that the challenge by Angela Regal will probably be mounted on Monday. It's less likely to be today or tomorrow. Do I think Jeremy Corbyn will still be there in the autumn? I have a feeling in my bones that he would rather crash the card than hand over the keys. And you definitely think Angelico is going to mount that challenge. The other suggestions that Owen Smith, who's a highly regarded Welsh MP, again from the soft left, so in conventional uh, mainstream media terms, pretty left wing, now seen as Blairite by the Corbynistas, he might have a good chance. Of- OK. And finally, Mark's on that cheerful note, what do you think? How do you think the the next week and few months are going to play out? We have to see which way the membership jumps. That's going to be determinative in all of this. Do you think Mr Corbyn will still be there by Labour conference, say? I would personally be surprised if he wanted to still be there, and I would be very surprised if he made it that far. Well, we can look forward to that war of attrition developing nicely over the next few months. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another episode of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.